0: You're at the park with your son when you see another child, a seven year old boy, run headfirst into a metal pole and fall to the ground. He doesn't get up right away, so you rush over to help. He's unconscious, but after just a few seconds, he wakes up and vomits. You identify yourself as a paramedic to the boy's mother, and she asks you if she should take him to the ER. You're listening to 911 Cast, the no nonsense EMS podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by OneKit First Aid Kits. Check out their high-quality first aid and first responder kits at buyonekit.com. That's b-u-y-o-n-e-kit.com. I'm Scott Topiel, and this week, it's all about pediatric head trauma. Kids hit their heads. And about half a million of them end up in the emergency department annually with traumatic brain injury, or TBI for short. While most of these cases are minor, about 2,500 children in the United States die each year from head trauma. Let's start by talking about minor head trauma. These are the kids that bump their head but seem perfectly normal. They have an initial GCS of 15, didn't experience a loss of consciousness, aren't vomiting, have a normal mental status for their age, and are behaving normally according to their parents or caregiver. They also don't have any signs of skull fracture, so no obvious defects like depressions or unstable sections of bone on palpation, no signs of basilar skull fracture, like blood or fluid leaking from the ears or nose, other than snot if they're crying, and definitely none of the later signs like raccoon eyes or battle signs. You also want to be really careful to check for scalp hematomas, A scalp hematoma after head trauma in a young infant is a risk factor for more severe brain injury and warrants further evaluation. That means a baby that fell off the changing table and now is a big old goose egg, even if they're otherwise fine, should still go to the hospital. Be careful, though. Before you tell that parent or caregiver that their child is fine to stay home, you need to consider some other red flags. First, think about the mechanism of injury. Was the head trauma caused by a high-risk event? This includes falls from greater than 5 feet for kids 2 years or older, or 3 feet for those under the age of 2, significant motor vehicle accidents that would generally meet trauma criteria such as a crash where the victim was ejected or another occupant in the car died, rollovers, and significant amounts of passenger compartment intrusion. Other high-risk situations that should make you take pause include head trauma to a bicyclist not wearing a helmet, a pedestrian struck by a vehicle, or a kid that was hit in the head by a high-impact object, like a melon fired from a trebuchet. Be on the lookout for mental status changes. They're not always obvious. Agitation or irritability after head trauma is a warning sign. The same goes for lethargy, being slow to follow commands, and repetitive questioning. Vomiting is pretty common after a head injury, so when do you need to worry about it? In general, a single episode of vomiting right after head trauma without any other symptoms isn't usually a big deal. But if the vomiting is accompanied by something else, like a really bad headache or altered mental status, or if the vomiting is repetitive, it can be a sign of a bigger problem, like rising intracranial pressure or ICP. Concussions are the most common type of traumatic brain injury, with most occurring in children as the result of contact sports like football, soccer, hockey, or lacrosse. Simply put, a concussion is a type of TBI that doesn't show physical injury on a CT scan, but involves microscopic damage. The most common signs and symptoms of concussions include headache, Confusion or disorientation, like walking the wrong direction or not being able to answer simple questions, repetitive questioning or memory difficulty, new trouble following instructions or focusing on a task, slow or incoherent speech, dizziness or trouble with balance, non-repetitive vomiting right after the injury, feeling unusually tired, or emotional lability, in other words, inappropriately crying or laughing. What about loss of consciousness? It's not that uncommon for someone that gets hit in the head to experience a brief loss of consciousness. Like vomiting, a single brief isolated episode right after minor trauma doesn't necessarily mean an increased risk for complications, but if they pass out longer than a minute or if they have any other signs and symptoms, the likelihood of having a more serious brain injury increases. One concussion isn't usually that big of a deal. But suffering a second one, especially before the first is completely healed, can cause long-term damage. If you suspect a child has a concussion, don't let them just walk it off and return to the game. For minor blunt head trauma, there's probably very little in terms of treatment that you'll need to do. But what about a serious head injury? In addition to considering spinal precautions and managing ABCs and immediate life threats, you'll want to check for neurological disability. You do this by getting an initial and accurate GCS score. Be sure you're comfortable calculating a GCS quickly. I'm not ashamed to admit that I didn't used to take this seriously and had a hard time determining the GCS without the help of cheat sheets. But GCS calculation really needs to be second nature. An initial GCS of 13 to 15 usually suggests mild TBI, while a GCS of 9 to 12 is associated with moderate injury, and a GCS of less than 9 usually means severe brain injury. It's not enough to calculate GCS once and forget about it. GCS is most helpful when trended, so get into the habit of frequently reassessing and documenting your patient's GCS. When caring for these patients, you want to ensure that they receive high-flow oxygen to prevent hypoxia, and you want to monitor their end-tidal CO2. An end-tidal CO2 below 30 millimeters of mercury can reduce blood flow to the brain and cause cerebral ischemia. When possible, you want to maintain an end-tidal CO2 between 35 and 40. If available in your system, consider intubation if your patient's GCS is less than 9 or if they've had a GCS of 12 that's now falling rapidly. Start two large-bore IVs if possible, but don't overdo the fluids. You want this access ready so that you can reverse hypotension should it occur. It's best to use isotonic crystalloids and avoid hypotonic solutions like D5 water, because they can cause cerebral edema, swelling in the brain. Be on the lookout for signs of increasing intracranial pressure and impending brain herniation. The most common signs of this are hypertension with either bradycardia or tachycardia, unequal or fixed and dilated pupils, abnormal breathing such as chain stokes, posturing or absent motor response to pain, and hemiparesis, paralysis on one side of the body. If any of these are present with head trauma, your patient's ICP may be rising, and that's bad. To reduce ICP, you first want to maintain normal oxygenation and ventilation as much as possible. Hypoxia and hypoventilation can cause cerebral vasodilation that in turn can raise ICP. If dealing with an isolated head trauma without likely spinal injury, elevate the head of the bed 15 to 30 degrees to help improve venous drainage which will help lower the ICP. Also, keeping the head in a midline position will ensure optimal venous drainage so that pressure doesn't build up so easily. Other simple things that you can do to reduce ICP include managing pain and administering antiemetics such as ondansetron to prevent vomiting. If these steps don't work and your patient shows signs of impending herniation like severe altered level of consciousness without motor response, or their posturing, then mild hyperventilation to maintain an end-tidal CO2 of 30 to 35 millimeters of mercury should be attempted. Hyperventilation reduces blood flow to the brain, which can temporarily decrease ICP, buying time to reach definitive care. Since hyperventilation decreases cerebral blood flow, you don't want to do this for patients without elevated ICP. Now back to the seven-year-old at the park. After running into a metal pole, he was knocked out for about 30 seconds. He came to and then vomited. After a few minutes, he vomited again, and his mom tells you that he seems off. You recognize that the boy's multiple symptoms—loss of consciousness, repetitive vomiting, and altered mental status—puts him at high risk for having suffered a traumatic brain injury. With this in mind, you tell the boy's mom that he should go to the hospital for further evaluation. You call an ambulance, and he's taken to a nearby hospital where he's diagnosed with a small intracranial bleed and admitted to the pediatric ICU for observation. He's discharged a few days later and makes a full recovery. Pediatric head trauma, including concussions, are a common occurrence. While most are mild and require little to no treatment, some can be quite serious. A thorough assessment, including trending of GCS scores and measures to reduce ICP, can make a significant difference in patient outcomes. That's it for this episode of 911 Cast. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes. Join us again next time for another EMS topic. Thanks for listening.